Pennsylvania has a long tradition of manufacturing centers. They called them ironworks, places where people came together to build things. This podcast is about building and sustaining our democracy. We call it Democracy Works. Hello, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. And this is Democracy Works. Today, we'll be talking to Sophia McLennan, professor of comparative literature and the School of International Affairs, and one of the country's foremost scholars of political satire. Yeah, we thought um, this was a great topic, first of all, because uh, Sophia really knows her stuff, but also mm-hmm. because this is a real uh, real interesting time in our, in our nation's history with regards to just the power and the ubiquity really, of, of political satire out there. Yeah, I remember when John, uh, when John Stewart went off the air and people were wondering, is there, what's next? Right. And uh, it, it feels like a renaissance, at least on TV, Well, and, and political, political satire. In some satire. ways, it's, it's, it's clearly, you know, a, a, a golden age, but it's also not the same. You know, you and I both remember uh, Johnny Carson and uh, Jay Leno and how— I never watched Johnny Carson. <laughs> I didn't stay up that way. All right, fine. But you were around. <laughs> yes. A lot of people listening to this were not. But in any case, um, he, th- those two and many before them were uh, scrupulous about being uh, nonpartisan or bipartisan or making fun of everybody. Right. Uh, but now you have um, folks who have clearly identified themselves in a partisan direction. Right. And I guess the closest to those is Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, is right, right. Exactly. Who's coming out of that election, there was a lot of agitation, a lot of concern, a lot of worry on the left. I think that's continued sure. for many. And so political satire kind of fills a void there, doesn't it? Well, do you think, I mean, I think it might be useful just to say a little bit about, you know, what do these terms mean? Well, you go you ahead. Know? What are we talking right. about when so, we talk about political so, satire? So, you know, satire is, um, you know, basically a form of comedy, a form of making people laugh, entertaining people, but it, it's very specific, right? You're, you're, you're popping a balloon. You're, you're taking something that has a high status in society, and that can be politics, but that can also be religion or some kind of cultural icon, and you're just taking it down a peg or two. Well, right, express political discontent. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot more dangerous to do satire. It's a lot more dangerous. But all that politics aside, I think people, a lot of people felt like they needed a good laugh. Absolutely. And that's a good part of what's going on. So, yes, every society has this kind of humor, Every society has this need to kind of um, take the ruler down a peg or two. Well, and in the United States, in a democracy, our our rulers are not royalty. Exactly, Uh, and all the more reasons. So there's also this implicit within uh, any political satire in a democracy is the effort or the uh, implicit effort to say – you're not in charge. We are. You work for us. We're the sovereign. So, so do you think it works in a democracy for the uh, for the object of satire to push back against it? I mean, Donald, <laughs> Donald Trump has a lot of commentary about Alec Baldwin playing him on Saturday Night Live, and I think I think in general it's bad politics. I don't think it's smart. I mean, I think you know you you have to accept this and roll with the punches. That's something that. Uh, Donald Trump seems um, he, he's not great at laughing he, at himself. He, yeah, he cannot do this. This is something that's just beyond the pale for him. But I, I mean, and and you know, clearly, um, I, I was thinking about this the other day that I think um, Trump supporters 
see any attack on the president, even a mocking attack, as kind of an attack on them as well. And so they're they're not disposed to finding this amusing. Well, I think that is a part of the sort of polarization and negative partisanship that we see these days. I, I think you're right about that, that attacks on Donald Trump are seen as attacks on Donald Trump supporters. Right. And, and we see this a lot in our poll, actually, in the McCourtney Mood of the Nation poll, that people, uh, Trump supporters feel that feel attacked themselves. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I do want to just say one other thing, and, it, and it, I, I'd be curious to know what you think about this. It seems to me like satire is a kind of highbrow comedy, right? It, you, can't make, you can't do satire without knowing something about the, the politician and about the politician's position. And, and let's face it, all these, um, you know, from everybody mm-hmm. who does the satire, they're all on the, on the coast – they're all the, the, the uh, liberal elite. I wonder if it doesn't kind of feed – by its nature, if it doesn't feed into this narrative that Trump supporters Yeah, have. yeah, it's a good point. I mean there, there are studies that Pew has done that I used in class that show how, especially among a lot of young people, that those who used to watch Jon Stewart anyway were more informed politically. Right. And one reaction I used to have to it was, hey, it seems like a bit of a selection going mm-hmm, on here, mm-hmm. that if you're choosing to listen to him, you, you probably have an idea what's going on to right. start with. And, and so the consumers of it are likely people that that know something already about, right. about politics and about what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating subject and one that I think is worth thinking about not outside the the lens of partisanship and you know who's getting skewered but but more in terms of just how does this function in a democracy and is it functioning well or could it function better right now yeah and of course sophia in her interview is going to focus on on tv satire right. but we're also talking with stephen brodner who is a uh, is a whose satire comes through caricature. Right. I, I, um, our listeners probably won't recognize that name, but if you if you go on our website, you will see his drawings and you will recognize them. He's yes. a very well regarded and, and cartoonist you know, for the right. LA mm-hmm. Times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, so anyway, why don't we just um, pause here and and bring out um, Jenna and and her two interviews, and then we'll come back and say more really fascinating and interesting things. Yep. That was irony, by the way. Jenna. Sophia, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy Works. Thanks for having me. So today we are going to talk about uh, the role of satire in a democracy. And I, I thought we would actually start there, kind of start with the really big question and then see where, where things go. In your view, what is the role of satire in a democracy? Well, I think in a perfect world, satire doesn't have that big a role <laughs> because satire's role is really to come in when things aren't working well. And so we have um, we notice that satire emerges in moments of crisis. And in the United States, we, we see satire come about as an important player in our democratic process when things are not going well. And my research really focuses specifically on the post-9-11 period and the role that satire was playing in, in that space when folks felt that the traditional news wasn't doing its job. And today, it's playing an extremely big role. Um, and again, that's largely because the news media itself has shifted in what it's doing in terms of informing the public. 
And so what is it, do you think, about those those moments of crisis that brings about this this desire for, for satire or perhaps makes it more popular? Well, basically, satire likes to uh, go after abuses of power, uh, faulty logic, and and folly, right? When human beings are doing stupid things, satire comes about and wants to say, hey, you know, that seems kind of dumb. And so that's sort of the, the satire is at its heart, right, a contrarian position. And it's always existed. In, and, and you can find satire about things that are not politics, too, right? Um, but I focus specifically on political satire. Yeah. And so um, is, it, is it your experience that people who are creators of satire are seeking to change a conversation or, or influence the way that people feel about the subject of that, that satire? So those are two separate things. One is that satire tends to try, again, I mean, what it's trying to do and what it does do are different things, right? But the satirist wants to get the audience to think critically, to stop accepting that you have only maybe two choices in a situation, right? So for instance, after 9-11, we were often told you're either with us or against us, right? We're either going to war in Afghanistan or you don't love your country. Satire at that time was saying, I'm not sure those are the only choices we have. Maybe we should think about this differently, for instance. So that's one thing. And then the thing that's fascinating is that folks are always feeling, uh, critics of satire often feel that the satirist is trying to tell you what to think, right, to not like something. But generally speaking, what the satirist is trying to do is to call out, right, call, to call out sort of the way in which the, the conversation's being framed and to recommend that we rethink that framing. And so what, what do we know about the, the types of people who consume satire, looking at it from, from that side of things? Well, that's actually some really interesting research. Um, and uh, one thing we know is that people who consume satire are smarter. So that seems to be pretty conclusive. Their, their critical thinking faculties are higher. And they also seem to be more creative. So it seems t- there seems to be a direct relationship between people who consume satire and sarcasm as a sort of subset or sister to satire are more creative. And that is interesting. And the reason why is because satire often depends on irony. And irony is related to saying something that you don't mean, right? Playing with language. And so... Um, this is always very confusing, but I always use the example that, you know, it's really cold here in central PA where we are today. It's snowing, and you might say, oh, hey, Sophia, how are you doing? I'm like, yeah, I love this weather, right? You know that when I said love, I didn't mean it. And so when your brain can do that, it's just smarter. And also in relation to being creative, it means that you can hear a word and know that it has multiple meanings. That simple thing is a sign of your ability to be both brighter and more creative. So that's really cool. There was a study that was done, done a long time ago, well, long, 10 years ago, about the, the Colbert Report, where um, students who identified as Democrats watched a clip of the Colbert Report. They thought it was funny. They got it. Um, and students who, I guess, didn't know anything about the show, who identified as being on the right, watched a clip and didn't get it, that it was ironic. So that, that was an interesting study, too, um, that seemed to suggest that 
uh, in that case, if you thought he was on your political mm-hmm. side, maybe, right, that was sort of a, a, a bias. Right. Yeah, yeah. I was actually just, just going to, to mention that very thing. Is there like a my team, your team making, you know, laughing at versus laughing with that, that kind of thing? It suggested that we have better ability to detect irony if it would already confirm our political position. But what was really interesting about that particular study was that the students not only didn't understand the irony, but they but they didn't feel insulted by it because they didn't they didn't get it. Um, so going back to um, the the creators of, of satire, where does the the First Amendment fit into this? It's funny that you are bringing this up. I'm going to be at an event at the University of Minnesota in a couple weeks, which is uh, looking at 30 years after the Falwell Hustler case. The Jerry Falwell sued Hustler magazine because um, at the time they had published a cartoon that suggested that his first sexual encounter was with his mother. It was not subtle <laughs> and um, was quite inflammatory. So he sues Hustler, right, for, uh, you know, defaming his character and loses the case. Goes all the way to the Supreme Court. He loses the case. And, and that case he loses because um, the argument, right, is that satirists are protected under the First Amendment and that they have a particular sort of clause of um, creativity, right, that um, allows them to say and do some things that uh, you couldn't do in a newspaper. There were protections on in that particular case where it seemed very clear <laughs> to me that the satirists were really making a lot of fun of Jerry Falwell, that they were insulting him in perhaps ways that you know one might suggest could have an impact on how people would understand Falwell. Um, but they were there. There are, in fact, fairly clear. Um, in this case, right, Supreme Court protections on on how satirists frame things, and we've seen some really interesting things in the last few months come across. Yeah, yeah. John Oliver was sued recently, right? So John Oliver did a piece basically on coal, where again, and this is related, you know, to Trump's arguments about bringing back coal and the good things that coal does. And John Oliver says, uh, makes fun of the coal industry overall and says, this is insane. This is really not in the best interest of our economy. It's not in the best interest of our environment. And he decides to, to call out Charles Murray um, specifically, right? That's a, right. Uh, Robert Murray. Sorry. He decides to call out Robert Murray specifically as sort of one of these um, – you know he's he owns a number of coal mines and he he makes fun of them and he I think he has a squirrel come yeah, on yeah, the big show squirrel. Um, and mock Murray also right and so it's just ridiculous right the whole thing is completely silly but Murray takes offense so so really Oliver dares him to sue him because he knows that Murray has gone after people before who've attempted to criticize him so Oliver just dares him to do it and then he does it and so that's the the case they then got sued and so what what other effects have you seen satire bring about i know we we talked earlier about um this kind of challenging people in power is is there research to to suggest that 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 actually happens yeah so um 
what what the research is finding, or at least my work is finding, is that satire does have bound what we call boundary heightening effects. And it was interesting because Malcolm Gladwell uh, wrote a piece critical of satire not that long ago. And one of the things that he listed among his various criticisms was this idea that, well, you know, when you when you engage in satire, you're going to alienate others. Um, my response to that was that most comedy, except for the kind of comedy that's either about bathroom humor, right, everybody poos, or um, comedy that's like, oh, it's really funny if you trip, right? Right, right. right. Um, Something on banana peel kind of thing. Is, in fact, predicated on creating um, group identities, right? Much humor is about group identities, right? So I can make fun of my own group. That could be funny. But if I were make, I could maybe make fun of white guys because that's always funny. But, but, but that is still humor that is about an identity. And so satire, of course, is about the it-getters and the butts of the joke always, right? The butt of the joke might be, um, in the case of political satire, right, the politician. And then it will, of course, alienate the politician's allies. And the idea that it wouldn't do that is nuts. So yes, for sure, satire, if it has a downside, is that it heightens those political gaps. Right. So... I guess on, on the one hand, could you maybe see that satire would increase political polarization, for example, as opposed to kind of creating more common ground type of thing? It's going to definitely heighten the lines between political divisions. If, again, you know, I think that trans people should be able to serve in the military and you don't, and I call out the faulty arguments we've been given for why that makes sense, you're going to be irritated. Mm -hmm. But I would argue too bad. Right, right. Because I have to fight. So again, because satire is about saying we've been told this makes sense and why this is why we shouldn't do this or, the, you know, the politicians or also the news media, which is a big target of satire, has framed things in this way. And I'm going to make fun of that framing. Mm-hmm. And if you are, if you think the framing is good, you will be irritated. That's just too bad. There's no way to fix that. And so satire definitely has a blowback effect on those people who agree with the way the system is working. Right, right. I guess on the the other side of that, I thinking specifically about you know Trevor Noah, John Stewart, John Oliver. Now they have heard them say that they kind of. They need to have a very solid factual basis before they could put anything else on top of it. So in some ways, it's kind of, you know, making sure that we are all working from that shared set of facts and understanding before you kind of apply the the, the satire layer, if you will, to it. Well, yes. But the other side is that just as much as we might think about the way in which the group that's the allies of the butt of the joke feel alienated and irritated by the joke, which we know, for instance, in the Trump era, right, Trump allies don't like John Oliver, don't like Colbert. If you were wearing a shirt, they might make some comment to you, right? But the other side is what does that do for the in-group? What does it do for the audience? And again, in politics, it's like, well, we're not talking about all holding hands and singing a song. We are, of course, in, in politics across political parties. And so what if it's mobilizing? In fact, we have lots of research to suggest that it performs a ton of valuable democratic features because it helps, you know, create energy and momentum and a shared narrative for those people who are sort of um, fighting for something. Right, right. Um, 
have you done any any research at all into how um, satire has has evolved? I mean, even since since nine eleven, right? The world is, is is in a lot of ways considering our, our media landscape a very different place with you know, the rise of social media and and things like that. Yeah, I've done a lot of research. I'm not sure that the word I would use is evolved mm. though, because that suggests that it's getting better, mm. which of course it is changing though, right? It's adapting to the current media landscape, and I. I suppose I, I give away my age and my sort of like traditional values to think that it'd be really cool if the news really were the news and the satire were the thing you looked at later because it added a little bit of spice to your evening. But that's not how it goes, right? So many people are getting their news first from satire. That is a real measurable change. Whether it's good or bad is debatable, but that's for sure true. And I've actually done increasing research on how memes are shaping public narratives, which is well outside of, say, late night comedy, right? We know that, um, first of all, after 9-11, it was Stuart and Colbert that became a go-to source as opposed to a comment on the news. It became the news. That's very interesting and I think, you know, not the best development but it's one that's not going away. It's only increasing. Right. So, and much of that is, in fact, ironic and satirical. Hmm. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on where things might go from here, given where, where we've come and what you've seen? Well, I mean, I think the other piece of this that's, that we're going to be dealing with, and again, um, it's not going to go away, it's going to increase, is the problem of the relationship between satire and fake news. Because satire, satirical headlines like what you see from Andy Borowitz on The New Yorker, if, if you aren't getting the irony and you read it straight, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, right? I, I, there was one that was like, you know, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, scientists don't understand how Paul Ryan can lead the country without a spine, <laughs> right? So, so that, again... <laughs> seems kind of clearly ridiculous just but again remember that the top shared fake news story was pope francis endorses trump to me i saw that i laughed just like you did because it was like that's that's kind of funny i thought it was meant to be like the onion because it could have been so we're in an era now where things that are circulated for ideological reasons to dupe the, to dupe the public and to manipulate them in negative ways come dangerously close to looking at like what we would think of as satire news headlines. Okay. And you should remember, it's interesting to me, but John Stewart was always called fake news and that wasn't a negative term then. It was funny. Mm -hmm. So now I think that's going to be the land that we're trying to sort out and it isn't going to change because this sort of fake news, hoax news, is on the rise and it's coming at us in really unexpected ways. It's getting more and more sophisticated. It's going to come very close regularly to the sort of satire news, which we know also is really good for the cognitive processing we need to do to be smart about what's happening in politics.
So we're going to, to, to close here um, by asking you our Mood of the Nation poll questions. So this will be like a little lightning round type of thing. In the uh, McCourtney Institute, we do the Mood of the Nation poll, which is an open-ended public opinion poll. So it gives people a chance to answer in longer form ways than just you know checking one box or another. So there are four questions that we ask on every poll. Um, I'm looking for your best uh, tweet-worthy responses to these questions. Okay. So, um, so thinking specifically about American politics. What makes you angry? <laughs> what doesn't make me angry would be a much shorter answer. Um, well, I would say at the very top, uh, what makes me angry is that Donald Trump still has a personal Twitter account. Very good. And uh, what makes you proud? Oh, God. Um, I would say right now what makes me proud is the way in which we've seen young people stand up um, for not just gun rights, but for really changing the narrative of how this country treats our uh, nation's youth. Sure. And uh, what makes you worry? That more, that's a really, again, a much, much shorter to say what uh, doesn't, what doesn't make it? me worry. I'm extremely worried. <laughs> um, I, I, I read the news in the morning and I don't feel well. Um, so I, I think it's very difficult, in fact. I, I suppose the thing that makes me worry the most is that we have so much to worry about and any sort of engaged political response requires us to be focused and strategic. And then finally, what gives you hope? Um, I think I, I have uh, such a privilege being a professor, right? My students give me hope. I am all the time. That is the one thing that makes it possible to keep fighting for things that I think that matter. Because, um, you know, I have now two teenage kids, and they're amazing. But my students um, at the university are awesome, you know, and, and the narrative about them is often very negative. But I really think once these kids grow up and take over, we're going to be way better off. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, we will leave it there. Sophia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Before we go back to Michael and Chris for their wrap up, we're going to hear from someone who creates satire on a daily basis. Steve Brodner is a cartoonist and caricaturist whose work has appeared in Rolling Stone, The New Yorker, and many other outlets over the past 40 years. He's drawn every president since Ronald Reagan and describes himself as an equal opportunity insulter. Steve visited Penn State in February for a talk about his work titled Too Close for Comfort. And while he was on campus, he spoke with us about satire's role in a democracy and how he plays that role through his work. We are all uh, pressed in a democracy to be engaged with uh, the national conversation, right? And, and uh, there's, a, uh, there's a sense that I'm having, and, and I think a lot of people are having it too, that we are in serious danger uh, in this country whenever we disengage. The, the idea of being engaged uh, on, a, on a pretty constant, continual basis is, is the key to making it work. This is a very important part of the whole thing. I don't, I don't think it's my job or my, my uh, brief or my, uh, within my purview to change anybody's mind. Uh, I feel that any of us, writers, photographers, musicians, cartoonists, illustrators, graphic artists, uh, what we can do is to connect with our people, connect with people who are ready for the message 
and uh, are also ready for the message that this is now the time for them to be very, very involved. Uh, but about this business about changing minds, I say, no, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. But what you can do is you can interrupt the silence. You can make sure that a racist statement or a, a statement of untruth gets followed by not silence, which is what they want, you know, purveyors of, of BS want there to be silence following it because that can imply consent. What you want to follow it with is somebody saying, no, <laughs> that's not true. Yeah. That is absolutely untrue. And here's some facts. And you don't, you don't change anybody's mind, but there, to know always that there are people on the periphery who are watching. Mm -hmm. And they have maybe not made up mm -hmm. their minds. And those are the minds that um, you can affect. But politics is about power. And everybody that we're talking about, governors, senators, presidents, uh, vice presidents, uh, mayors, uh, anyone that a political cartoonist, caricaturist covers is necessarily uh, a person who is carrying with him or her, wherever they go, uh, power they represent this ability to affect other people. And if you want to criticize them and be entertaining at the same time, cartoons should be entertaining, uh, a great thing to do is to take them down and, and show that they're not that important. They are actually fallible, silly people like everyone else and uh, can be poked fun at. All right, well, uh, we're, we're back. And that was a, a really interesting, uh, you know, dis discussion with two experts about this, uh, this phenomenon of political satire. Yeah, well, one who is a satirist and right. one who studies it. Right, and, and what was really interesting to me was um, from, from Steve, from uh, Stephen Brodner, you get this, he, he talked about uh, interrupting the silence, right? He is somebody who sees his job you know, he may or may not convince you, but his job, his reason for getting out of bed in the morning is to speak truth to power. And, but but, but uh, Sophia's conception of what political satire does and what it is is a little bit different, right? Yeah, it, 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 as she discussed it here anyway, it seemed more like a reaction to a moment that I, I think she had a, a line in there about uh, a response to crisis. Right. And uh, she referenced 9-11 and then implicitly was talking about post-Trump election. Uh, and, and so and maybe this really is the case when you're talking about TV satire in particular, that there is more of a reaction and a capturing of a moment mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, than uh, what I hear Brodner talking about, which is that. Uh, well, no, this is something th – this is part of the work of democracy. Right. We, we do this all the time. So long as there are people in power, mm -hmm. uh, we're going to skewer them. Right, right. And he sees himself working in a tradition that goes all the way back to like Thomas Nass and the people who – the man the, who basically single-handedly took down – uh, Took down uh, the Tammany uh, machine. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Boss, mm. boss Tweed. Yeah. yeah well, I'm, I'm, we, we haven't talked at all about John Oliver, but uh, you know, I'm really struck. John Oliver is not really Trump-focused. Yeah, he, that's I true. mean, he, he, he does have a good time with him, but he does a lot of other things, mm -hmm, too. Mm -hmm. And and it, it is a sort of satire that really encourages engagement and involvement. Uh, it's also, you know, uh, she was talking a bit and I thought 
quite importantly about how, you know, this is satire. These are jokes. This is comedy. It's not supposed to be the news. But but actually, I think John Oliver does approach it like it's the news. And he always or at least often has a sort of form of political engagement and response worked into it that he wants to channel your laughter, disgust, whatever you might have been feeling from what he had to present into some kind of action. Well, that's interesting because, you know, the, the, the argument against satire has always been that it's just negative, right? It, it just tears down. It doesn't offer constructive solutions. And you're right. Yeah, but let's also acknowledge how partisan it is well, or that's how the, partisan that's his audience issue. is. And that's the point, But in right? this day and age, it seems like anything you say and do is is – it, that's it, it, true, but but uh, Sophia also said, I wrote it down because I thought it was interesting. She said, uh, you're better able to detect irony if it conforms to your existing political beliefs. So if it, it, it seems like where we're going is not just news that has to be funny, but news that has to be funny in a way that fits where you are already politically. Those were two really interesting interviews, and Brodner's presentation on campus was it was terrific. Was yeah. quite interesting, and I've had the opportunity to uh, hear Sophia talk about her work and to read her work. Uh, she's got a new book coming out. She writes in Salon Magazine, and I think what she's talking about um, and what Brodner is doing are in uh, you know important types of work in in democracy. Right, and it's it's important for us as citizens. To think about what it's being, what is being conveyed here, uh, and what is the point of view? How am I meant to consume this, and is it working? I think if you're going to be a good democratic citizen, that's part of your uh, task as a consumer of satire. Yeah. Well, for another. That that, that, that sounds like uh, that sounds like another democracy works. There you go. At, and and we just like find them everywhere under the rocks. We're finding episodes. So uh, I'm I'm Chris Beam and I'm Michael Berkman. And for both of us, for Jenna Spinelli, and for we want to thank uh, Sophia and Stephen for being so generous with their time, and thank you uh, all for listening. Well, join us for the next Democracy Works. 